everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Okay, welcome everyone. I am so glad you're here this week and you will be too. We are very lucky to be joined by Debbie Reber, who is the founder of Tilt Parenting, which is an online resource community and podcast for parents raising Uh, neurodivergent kids. And she's also the author of an awesome book, Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope. So, and a mom and many other things. Um, (laughs) So welcome, Debbie. I am really glad you're here today. Thank you, Laura. I'm so happy to do this with you. Yeah, we were chatting a bit before we're getting ready to, to go on today and just thinking about COVID and where we are right now and where families are and all the things families and teens have had to navigate. And I really see it in in my work, and I know you're hearing it in your work and parent communities, a lot of trepidation, uh, fear, <laughs> panic, dread, uh, excitement about 
what's about to happen this fall all across the U.S. and other places in the world where many kids and families are coming out of the cocoons that, that we've been in for the last year and a half. We hope we're coming out of these cocoons. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't know. And that's something else we'll talk about, too. And, and I think that's causing a lot of Again, a combination of worry and hope in families. How to support teens. You and I were talking about how the teen population and, and kids who are atypical teenagers have had special um, stresses, have had distinct stresses during COVID. What are you hearing in your parent community are some of the things that neurodivergent teens uh, have been experiencing during COVID? Yeah, it's been really interesting because they're, there is a small population of neurodivergent kids and teens who've actually really thrived during this time because of not being in school every day and being able to not deal with the unpredictability of a classroom environment and all the other kids and the social challenges that so many of these kids have. And so it has worked really well. So for kids that it's worked really well for, Going back into the fray is spiking a lot of anxiety. And then we have kids, I would say the majority of kids have struggled substantially during this time because of the isolation. And these are kids who may already have a smaller friend pool, um, you know, who may be getting special services at school. And so this has been a real challenge for them. And now about to go back into to a classroom, but not knowing exactly what it's going to look like. And is and there's just anxiety about that, you know, and, and especially for teenagers, I know that a lot of these kids are concerned that they have really lost time, mm-hmm. that they've lost, you know, skills that, and the older the teens, the more uh, stressful that is, that idea that, these were important. That was an important year that I just completely missed out on. Now I'm really behind. Yeah. And I think to sort of even say if for folks who, who aren't sure what we're, when we say, you know, neurotypical or neurodivergent, this sort of just for, for those of you out here who are learning about this world or tuned in for nieces or nephews or, you know, neighbors, kids, thank you for being here. If you are part of the, the village surrounding parents raising kids. And um, just to clarify, it just means, you know, kids who learn differently, who socialize with added supports, it can encompass diagnoses like autism or ADHD or dyslexia, just just mm-hmm. suggests that there are alternate kinds of supports that help our kids show up fully socially, emotionally, and learning wise. So there is no one, and that's what makes it interesting. Like even when you said we, you know, there's no, you know, box of kids that we're looking at. Here's the three steps of things they may need, but there are some commonalities um, across the board. And I think what I heard you say there is that even the kids who were doing well and were able to cocoon and actually enjoyed having more predictable environments, less spontaneous demands for social uh, contact and things, um, less stimulation from a sensory standpoint, right? They're able to control their environment more. Mm -hmm. So for a group of kids for whom COVID isolation has actually felt like a relief and made the world easier, they're 
I'm going to be moving back out. And many of us adults, you know, neurotypical and neuroatypical are are realizing that as well. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, imagining can our systems tolerate what the world is about to deliver us if it gets back to normal. So Mm -hmm. for the subset of kids who arguably have felt good, there's tremendous anxiety about what they're returning to that they got used to not having. For that other subset of kids who've really been struggling, they still have a lot of anxiety about mm-hmm. um, can they still get along with friends? Have their friends left them behind? What will it be like once they're all back in school again? So what other, what are, what other kinds of things are you hearing that, that parents wonder about or are worried about? Well, I think parents are really involved right now in their kids' lives, perhaps more so than before. And so their anxiety, uh, a lot of parents are concerned about, you know, learning loss is something, if you Google learning loss, you'll find, <laughs> you know, thousands of articles about this. And so there is this um, pressure that a lot of parents feel and they're worried about, oh gosh, what is this going to look like? Should I hold my child back? That conversation is happening a lot. Um, And so that is something that as parents, we also have to really manage because our kids are really so sensitive to our energy and our emotions and our anxiety. And so that is really kind of muddying the waters even more right now too. the concerns the parents have about um, going back in and just feeling like, I mean, it does feel almost make it or break it in some ways. And I, and I'm trying to really encourage parents and families to, to just slow down, you know, to not worry about, you know, learning loss. I don't even want to hear that phrase again. You know, we really want to hone in and focus on our kids' mental well-being right now more than anything. And so, but that's a big mind shift because parents want to get back to routine. Parents want to go back to to the workplace. They want their kids out of the house. Many, I mean, some are cherishing this time, but I know plenty are ready for a break. And um, so there's just a lot of, yeah, there's just a lot of tangled up emotions happening right now. And as you said, like, we're not doing so well either, you know, I, I went to, I live in New York city and I went to a, the Roadrunner club has these open runs on Tuesday nights. And I was like, I'm going to go, I need to connect with humans. And I, the first time I went, I didn't talk to another person. I, te- I pretended to be texting on my phone because I just couldn't even handle like saying a word to another person. So we're having these troubles and I have some social skills. And so, yeah, that struggle is going to be real for a lot of us. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're pointing that out because I, and I've seen in the arc of my uh, work uh, during COVID in the beginning, people were in shock. They were numbness. Then there was this phase of like, this isn't so bad. I'm not driving the kids as many places. Like our life is simpler. We've craved simplicity. In some ways there are less external demands. Like I can do this for a little bit. And then in the last stretch, the last six months, it's been edgy, like literally like for a lot of folks, uncomfortable in their skin, like wanting to get back out there, but also feeling really easily overwhelmed and overstimulated Mm -hmm. when they, when they start to get back out into what is louder, unpredictable, more demands, people are, are stressed out. So you're not even just venturing back out into the world as it were, you're venturing back out into the world with a bunch of other people who are unsure about being back out in the world. We don't know for how long there's a lot of, 
a lot of ambiguity. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if we look at parent anxiety, mm-hmm. <laughs> kid anxiety, and we throw in ambiguity, we throw in unknowns because we're all living in this place where where realistically things can shift, right? We can prepare our kids, we can, you know, plan for them. And we'll talk a little bit about what are some of the things that that are helpful for anxious kids in general and neuroatypical kids. Um, And we have to also be be bent in the knee, like in a stance that is balanced with our knees bent so that we can shift direction um, to meet those unknowns. I I really love what you said, and I want to highlight. It's one of the biggest takeaways from today for for parents listening. Is I think my bias is with all kids, and especially with kids who are differential learners, socially and academically, focusing on attachment and wellness, like staying connected to your kid, making sure they feel that they're as best you can balanced and and able to shift in either directions is so much more important than sophomore year math curriculum deficits. Like 100%. And, and, and I think there's a really important piece in that strategically, it's a mind shift, but also strategically. All kids, but especially kids who have differential, you know, learning ways of being in the world, anxiety rarely helps. It it rarely actually helps them rise to the occasion. A little bit, right? Like a little bit of nervousness, wanting to do well, conscientiousness. Those are all forms of anxiety. So a little bit of that can 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 help a person dial into focus. But very quickly, if the parent is anxious about learning loss, if the parent is fearful what's going to happen for their kid when they go back out, that will mm-hmm. tip the scale and actually undermine your child's ability to be at their best. Does, mm-hmm. does that sound like what conversations you're having in Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of what I'm talking about um, when I talk to groups of parents is creating a secure world for our kids. And, you know, sometimes, and I'm sure you talk about this on your show, uh, that anxiety doesn't look like anxiety. It might look like anger. It might look like tears. It might, it might seem like overreaction. You know, it may not seem logical to us at all. Um, And it's just so important that we help our kids not be in this kind of chronic fight or flight space and creating a really secure environment so that they can kind of let those defenses down and and then be open to supporting their own mental health, you know, to all of those things. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a mind shift for people. And, you know, as a society, we are so trained to care about, you know, these milestones tied to academic performance and, and, I just think for all kids, not just differently wired kids, like the mental health piece is real. You know this, you work with families. You know, I have a lot of friends who who are therapists who work with teenagers. I know people who run camps. The camp scene this summer has been a mess um, because the mental health of of both campers and counselors has really not been great. And Um, I think it's really a preview for what's to come. So I think the more that we can really go into this, knowing that our kids' mental well-being has to be the most important thing 
and and prioritizing that through connection, through creating that secure world. That's really the best that we can do going into this kind of unknown back to school season. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I think what comes to mind for me is a quick, so for folks who are listening and, and to expand on what Debbie said, like some, some hallmark symptoms of anxiety, symptoms, there's that word again. Sorry, every once in a while, the psychologist speaks it. The hallmark, you know, red flags or warnings or little glimmers of anxiety are exactly anger, low frustration tolerance, so quick to get frustrated. Asking lots of questions over and over again is a key one. Avoidance. Avoidance is, a, is an indicator as much as it feels like sometimes, well, they don't want it. They just don't want to do this or... They would rather play their games than think about school. It's like uh, avoidance is a very common coping strategy to deal with discomfort, right? So Mm -hmm. moving away from thinking about school or talking about it, being frustrated. Um, Habits tend to go up during this time. So, So if there is a habit around screens, that will get more intense. If there's habits around playing with hair or picking skin, things like those kinds of things. Our, our parents are likely to see more of those. So just being mindful that that if your child is doing things that are frustrating to you, because here's the thing, anxiety mirrors and fuels anxiety, right? So very often if a parent is anxious, a child's behavior will trigger the parent anxiety and vice versa. So you have this feedback loop of two stressed out people often not talking about the stress, but rather just bouncing off each other's bad, frustrated behavior. <laughs> so there's a snapshot of what it might look like. And then for parents, what do you mean when you say, like, make a predictable world? Like, or what, what did you say? Secure world. Secure what, world. Yeah, what are some things you recommend for parents when they think about this transition? Yeah, I mean, it could be actual physical things, right? It could be making sure that home feels safe. That could be creating a cozy space. A lot of these kids are very sensory uh, oriented and tactile and and respond to feeling like, you know, certain fabrics, cozy fabrics. Um, You know, in my world, it involves a lot of baking and making tea. Like that's part of how I create a secure world. It's very comforting, Um, cozy slippers, nice music. So creating a really that physical environment. And then also, I really think it's important that we look for opportunities to take demands off of our kids. And this might seem counter to some parents because especially with our teens, we, we want to see our teens stepping up, building their life skills, being more independent and doing all the things. And it can be really hard to know, um, you know, am I denying my child this chance to grow these skills or do they not have the capacity to handle the demands that I am placing on them right now? So that's, you know, we can talk about that scaffolding so that that is a very real piece, but also just kind of, I like to think about school and home as like a separation of church and state. So making sure that, you know, what happens is it's like going to Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like what happens at school happens at school. Home, you get to just be, you know, not bombarded with questions or like nagged about homework, but you get to just feel loved and supported for who you are so that you can really let those defenses down. So it's all these kind of different pieces so that our kids really can truly relax because they need that space. 
Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. that. The question comes up a lot from, from other professionals and from parents who aren't <laughs> raising differently wired kids is this idea of like, so do, does that mean we have no expectations for them? Does that mean that, you know, they can do whatever they want? It's like, no, the reality is that you have to have a, a soothed, regulated child in order for them to show up in the world and then learn, right? So yes. it, in that, absolutely, you're, you're teaching expectation, you're modeling all kinds of different ways to be in the world, you're holding them accountable for following through on things. It's just not done at, at the same pace or intensity and you, and you have to take some extra steps. And I do a whole other, um, and will do other episodes around the, the sensory stuff. I mean, it's, it's huge, like figuring out what soothes your child, what helps them collect, what literally calms their, their beings and their nervous systems so that their frontal lobe can work. I mean, it's science. It's not being overly permissive. It's not any of this, you know, feel it's, it's science in terms of bringing out the best in, in them. So I really, I like that in terms of tangible takeaways, be thinking about is your home a, a is there a space in your home? Nobody's home is a cozy corner all the time. Like that, that's real too. Nope. But it's nice to have designated routine or place or objects or, you know, rituals and things that are just known to help parents and kids alike regroup, model that for your kids, create a space together. I also think the second piece that I talk about a lot is a check-in process, right? So one is sort of having the structure in place to be able to help. The other is some kind of way to recognize when one or the other of you is dysregulated and be able to say like something feels off or imbalanced or not regulated or language that are not judgy necessarily to be able to check in, you know, something doesn't feel right. What do you need? Do you hear parents talking yeah. about that at all? Like check-in plans or, or ways that they know how to signals? What, what have you seen parents do? Yeah. I mean, a lot of parents, the signal is that their child has a meltdown or, you know, <laughs> so the signal is pretty clear. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is making sure that the parent is able to take care of themselves in that moment and manage their own en energy so that we don't escalate the situation so that we can try to, you know, bring our child down um, in the way that we validate, we stay calm. My friend talks about using a bank teller voice when we're with our child and they're having a hard time, which I like that language. And it's complicated because a lot of, especially teenagers, they don't, they may not be that communicative or they may not want to share what's going on in their inner world and stuff. So it's, it's kind of a balance. It's a, it's a tricky dance. I think Having a really solid relationship with your child, which, you know, that's the foundation for everything. Mm -hmm. So if you can work on building that connection, that trust, then, you know, and you can't force it, but it means consistently showing up for your child, holding a space for them, trying not to get entangled in their emotional experience will make them be more receptive to those check-ins. And like, and and I think what you said is so nice, like how can I support, is there anything I can do to support you right now? Not trying to fix it because we also know that our kids need to learn how to tolerate uncomfortable emotions and anxiety and understand their own hacks, for lack of a better word, of how to kind of support themselves. But that, that, that check-in and 
anything I can do for you right now, I'm here. If you need anything, let me know. If it's okay with you, I'll check in with you in another hour. And then also sometimes just saying, you know, if they say, yeah, I'm having a really rough day. It's like, yeah, that happens. I'm here if you need me, you know? So there's a lot going on here, but really it's about holding the space and uh, really validating our kids' emotional experience while also supporting them to learn how to manage those difficult emotions. Yeah, and that's a, it's a great point that too often a parent default is verbal. What's going on with you? Why are you? And and then if they if we shout, if they then are frustrated and say like, well, you know, I don't want to go there. Then I don't want to do that thing. Well, you know, you need to because blah blah. And so then we go right into a verbal coaching session. And we're making the press for verbal um, responses. And a lot of kids, once they start to go offline, the first thing that goes is organized verbal communication, right? It just isn't what's available to a lot of kids. So, so ideally, exactly. The, the idea of checking in is for parents to have an awareness of like up, something's off. Like, how do I not see this behavior as personal and directed at me? How do I notice that my kid is dysregulated? Okay. Something's up here. Can I check in and say, you know, what do you need? You know, things Mm -hmm. seem shaky or whatever language you've established with your kid, whatever language your kids use, you seem, you seem unsure, or it seems like things are stressful. Is there anything I can do for support? And then back out, right? They're like, no, it's not taking the bait to jump into how they handle you if they're still dysregulated. So it's offering something which is lovely and then backing away, you know, maybe go, why you, you know, what, you know, there's some stuff you know to do when you're feeling frustrated. How's that playlist you, I mean, I have, I work with teens a lot to develop playlists specifically for when they need to get kind of pumped up versus when they need to mellow out. So without mm-hmm. listing for your kid what they should do, you know, being able to kind of say what's worked before when you didn't feel great. And then just kind of back out. Yeah. And I like the idea too, of like planning with your kid when they're not in that moment, like, Mm -hmm. you know, developing those strategies. Like we used to have something on the wall that was, you know, things to do when you're bored. And it's like, if you're having, if you're feeling unmotivated to do anything, here's a bunch of different projects that you know that you like, or here are games that you know are fun, or here's a YouTube channel that you really enjoy. So doing those things in advance. And I'll, I'll share that one of the things I, talk about is this idea of becoming fluent in our kids Mm. language right and I love that you talked about the the nonverbal piece too like we get to know our kids and their language changes as they grow but it's it's so nice to be able to understand you know when they're doing something or maybe it could be the game they've decided to play the it could be the fact that they haven't checked in with a friend it could be getting in pajamas, you know, at two in the afternoon, like whatever it is, like we can read a lot and understand, oh, this is what's going on with my child right now. And that can help us kind of better support them as well. And I will also say like, there's a lot of text conversations or, you know, Skype conversations that can be a really great way to communicate with a child who, who, who wants to be checked in on, but isn't really in a space to have an in-person conversation. Thank you for that. I think especially, you know, folks who don't, I mean, we, uh, many families spend a significant amount of time wrestling with how much tech they want in their child's life. And so often when I suggest to parents, 
that they text their child, they, they just bristle. You can see the arches come up, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, I get it. I, I really do. And for teens in particular, um, it, it is an indirect way to be able to check in without the demands. They can paste their reply. They can, you know, and it is in a language that they're familiar with. Um, and so, and they will often say more. Then they wave. It's the blessing and the curse of text communication is yeah. that they will often say things they wouldn't say when they're activated and upset. That's hard as parents. If you're getting a string of nasty texts back, then it's time to stop texting as an attempt to, to connect and soothe. But mm -hmm. checking out the water with that, like once they've gone to their room, how you doing, kiddo? You know, whatever. Are you hungry? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes we know it's food. I mean, even... Mm -hmm. uh, some, we think of that as a toddler, uh, you know, support. Mm -mm. I mean, throughout the lifespan, um, it can be a big piece. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, don't shy away from the languages and the media that, that work for connection with the goal of soothing enough so that problem solving and managing what's about to be um, tricky uh, can happen. So, so yeah, if parents are thinking about creating space and rituals, staying regulated, I mean, creating comfortable spaces or rituals or, or soothing, connecting things so that kids have a chance to, to reload and recalibrate and, and be replenished. And if we're thinking about staying regulated, if your kid is dysregulated and having some check-in uh, way to communicate, offer support, not try to fix. The, the third piece I'm thinking about in terms of getting ready is, is, is predictability. Um, mm -hmm. What comes up for me a little bit, and I want to know if this resonates in what you're hearing community or what you think about and what you've seen is there are some unknowns. There are a lot of unknowns. And yet there are some knowns for our kids in this, right? How much of a picture can we sketch for them of what to expect, a reminder of what the schedule will be like, making things visual, driving by the school they're going to return to a couple of times. If you're allowed on campus, you know, being able to take a walk through or have them meet a friend there, you know, whatever. It, it's it's a it's a gradual exposure. So it's a it's a making things knowable and gradually introducing kids to the pieces that you can. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if you hear that as helpful in the community, but like making what you can make grounded and clear is important. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm encouraging parents to do is both for themselves and with their kids to make a list of all the things they're worried about. Just to get it all out, all the unknowns, all the everything, you know, um, irrational, small, big, and go through them. And obviously there are going to be many things on that list that we can't control. But what we can think about and proactively plan for is, you know, okay, what if this does happen? What, what could our plan A be? And what could our plan B be? You know, and so that proactive problem solving is huge. Because sometimes just knowing that we've got a plan is enough to kind of take the edge off that anxiety. And so I love the idea of going and practicing, you know, the school commute, um, seeing what that walk is like. Yeah, getting to see the school if you can. And, and also just, again, for parents to 
be okay with the fact that it might take a lot longer for our kids to adjust to back to school than, than we would like. We might want them to just go off to school and like get with the program, you know, (laughs) and I think we just need to expect that this is going to take longer. They're going to need more. So they may not, but they may need a lot more support. They might need more practicing. They might need to role play um, interactions with other kids, you know, so but starting with that, getting all of those concerns out and for us as well, so -hmm. that we can really do our own work so we don't contribute to our kids' anxiety. Because when you look at that list, you're going to see some things are practical, like backpack, supplies, um, you know, communicate with the school about the 504 or about the IEP or whatever it is. There are tangible things that are actionable, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't have to once they're in a list, they don't have to float in, in your mental space, agitating your nervous system. Mm-hmm. There will be other things on that list. What if they don't make friends? You, you know, what if they just refuse to go that morning? Like we, I mean, you can predict some, you can try some role mm-hmm. plays, but, but in the end, you're, then it's your work to step back and say, you know, we've got this, we'll figure it out. You know, worrying about the things that are not actionable, you know, it's life's work to figure out how, mm-hmm. how not to just sit in the worry, but to be able to let some of that go and recognize that if you turn that worry into lots of questions to your kid or asking a ton or forcing the issue of multiple playdates the week before school goes back, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's that notice that drive coming from within it's an invitation for parents and and just check back and figure out what's on your own list of soothers right so if you notice you're ramped up like that does that mean you meet a girlfriend for coffee does it mean you do a mindfulness sit does it mean you hammer out the shed in the backyard that is you know like what what how can you um take care of your own sensory needs and your own balance needs so that um, there isn't that hum. I call it, it's a a hum that starts to happen and Mm -hmm. and feeds off each other. So Mm -hmm. I think the list is great because you'll see on it, there are some things that it is really prudent to take actionable steps today or tomorrow or next week for. And then other things are going to be more diffuse, um, Mm -hmm. broader worries about our kids and that's where staying connected, um, well, staying calm and connected with your kid is, is the best thing you can do for all those imaginary future worries. I call it the crystal ball gazing, right? If you're spending a lot of energy peering into the smoke of a crystal ball, borrowing worry from the future about all the things that can go wrong, that makes it a, it makes it a hard place to, to be able to be upbeat. The, the one other thing I would say, I don't know if this comes up in community too, is it's also when we have kids who are resistant, when we have kids who are afraid, it's easy to go into cheerleader mode. I have a complex relationship <laughs> with the cheerleader mode <laughs> in terms of like that peppy, it's going to be great when you're actually kind of nervous and your kid can see through that and you've got this pained look on your face and you're overly peppy and optimistic because you hope that that's the approach they'll take. This is just an invitation for parents to actually be okay saying you're right. Parts of this are probably going to be hard. You're right. Mm-hmm. 
parts of this are going to be overwhelming or no wonder you don't want to, I don't want to go back into the foray. Like, I don't know what your thoughts are on the cheerleader mode, but, but yeah, I mean, certainly I have been that cheerleader in the past and it has never worked out well because, you know, there's a long history in my family of really underwhelming experiences that I thought were going to be great. Mm. And so I've stopped doing that. And in fact, we've started really lowering our expectations and um, that has helped immensely. But, but also, you know, when we're cheerleading, it's because we are, we're trying to protect our kids from something that they need to experience. You know, it's so important that our kids feel all of these feelings, that our kids feel worried and and then persevere anyway, that they survive it, that they realize I can do this, even though I was super anxious and uncomfortable. I did it anyway. You know, those are really important lessons. And we also want them to know that their emotional lives matter. And so when we're cheerleading, we are not acknowledging and validating their felt experience. And so I, I am not, I do not cheer anymore. It would not go well if I did. And definitely there's just a lot of validation, a lot of listening and that could just be reflecting back. You're feeling this way right now. I understand that that feels really hard. I know what that's like. I'm here. Let me know if you need anything. Yeah. And I think what you touched on, one of the things that I think is so powerful in the thread of families raising differently wired kids is the underwhelming experiences. Standardized education and social settings can be amazing and often are not for differently wired kids, right? And so there's a reality there that I think adds a layer to supporting our kids um, in terms of being able to say school has had some bumps, you know, buddy, we've really had some rocky rides in, in, in the past. And so I get it. I'm kind of holding my breath a little bit too sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and it'll be okay. And we do hard things. So, so there is an optimist. It doesn't mean you hold no optimism. That's not what I mean when I say, you know, the cheerleader step back, but but in my experience, and a lot of what I do in work is if we go right to the optimism and that it's going to be great and we skip over the, you know, we all have a little bit of, of hesitation based on, you know, what it's been like before to figure out new settings and newness is hard. And there are specific ways that newness has been hard for us. And we've been disappointed by people that we thought understood it before. Like, mm-hmm. I get that. No wonder we are feeling a little bit hesitant, right? And we got this. And once mm-hmm. you get in the swing of it, it gets easier. And you love this science class you get to have or whatever. Like you can pivot toward reason to be optimistic, reason to believe in a kid's strength. But if you go there first, then we are um, silencing that piece of them that doesn't feel. It teaches them not to trust what they're mm-hmm. feeling in their body, in my yeah. experience. Yeah, so. absolutely. And these, as you said, these are kids who have almost systemically struggled because the environments, the classrooms, the places that where we ask them to spend a lot of time were not designed to support who they inherently are. And so I think one of the most valuable things we can do is help our kids really deeply understand themselves. And I mean, the benefit of that is I believe that these 
you know, neurodivergent kids who, because of the way we've shown up and we've supported them and we've explored this stuff deeply, I think they're going to grow up or they do grow up to be some of the most emotionally intelligent humans on the planet who know themselves deeply. They really understand their strengths. Hopefully that's where they spend most of their time, but they also understand areas of challenge for them and they'll know how to ask for the support they need when it comes to their weaknesses in certain environments. So um, yeah, you're right. We can't deny what their experience is. So it's really just important that we, that we listen and, and yes, always reinforcing that message that not just that we can do hard things, but we are doing hard things. (laughs) We know that these kids are on their own unique timeline. And maybe that's one of the gifts of COVID is that everyone's timeline is thrown off. And so we can take pressure off all kids Mm -hmm. at this point to be, you know, you need to be here by this grade or age and you have to do this, this, and this. And we are in this for the long haul. We are raising humans. We're raising adults. We know that neurodivergent humans, their, you know, prefrontal cortex and their executive function and those things really settle in in their mid to late twenties, which is lagging from a neurotypical person. And so we have to really zoom out and remember that we're trying to raise these adults who will know themselves deeply and can create an amazing life for themselves. And so this is just one little blip in that. It's one little leg of that big marathon. And that, that hopefully is a calming thought for people. Yeah. Well, yeah, because at the end of the day, our ability to trust that we know our kids and that we're doing the best that we can and to be forgiving of ourselves when we stumble on a given day, right? No no house can be regulated. No parent can always see the anxiety under the behavior, but we show up every day, one, one day, one hour, one afternoon at a time, hoping to just recognize the cues that our kids are likely to be a little off. It most often shows up in behavior first. So in closure, it's an invitation to, to look beneath the behaviors that are coming at you and know what regulates both of you, all of you in the household so that you can stay in communication. And, and, I, and I think I would leave folks with the image of the, the balance, that a balanced stance has a little bend in the knees um, so that this back to school time with with all kinds of unknowns and what's happening in public health in general right now, who knows what this will look like. But if there's a bend in your knees and, you, and, and feet on the ground, then then we can absorb and shift and stay upright through it all. So <laughs> thanks for joining today, Debbie. It's a pleasure. We could go on and on for hours. So I'll have to have another another chat. It's really lovely to um, to be in community. And thanks for all the work you're doing for parents. And Thank kids. you so much. Thanks for all the work you're doing too. I'm grateful for this conversation. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. And if you'd like to find me other places, come take a look at my website, www.drlaraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter and keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation, Facebook at Common Chord psychology services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.